session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwin. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, the studio number is 310-441-0555. Again, doing these shows on Friday now, 4 to 6 p.m. Adjustment for me, might be adjustment for the listeners as well, but look forward to making this the new regular Fridays, 4 to 6. Of course, if you're listening to this at 1.5 speed, you need not worry about that. It means you're listening to me on the podcast. Let's get to the books of the week. Um, The book of the week for this week that I'll actually talk about on Monday's show, just a few days away, is Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. Civil Disobedience, of course, um, this is a classic nonfiction book, but also relevant with what we're seeing happening in Iran. I have been trying to educate myself more about different schools of thought, information, knowledge related to revolutions, movements, and civil disobedience would fall under that category as well. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you on Monday's show. And so uh, this last week I read another classic book by a well-known thinker, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, The Concept of Anxiety. I got some uh, input on how you say the name correctly in Danish. So he's a Danish philosopher and uh, pardon me because I probably won't say it correctly. We say Soren Kierkegaard when we say it in English, but it's more like Son Kierkego, something like that. Son, Son Kierkego. Um, I really did a bad job, and my teacher won't be happy, but tack for your help. Um, but the book is The Concept of Anxiety by Soren Kierkegaard. And it was a book that's very related to. Things like, of course, anxiety is in the title. The subtitle, A Simple Psychologically Oriented Deliberation in View of the Dogmatic Problem of Hereditary Sin, by far the most complex subtitle of any of the books I've read these past few years, um, and might get into pieces of even that subtitle. Hereditary Sin is sometimes referred to as original sin, the sin of Adam. And so he calls it hereditary sin, which he has his reasons for. But I was drawn to the book. One, I enjoy some of the other works and things I've seen from Soren Kierkegaard. Um, He has some quotes that really, to me, were quite powerful that drew me to his thinking. But of course, it's not just about some bite-sized quotes. He's written some great works in philosophy. But for example, he has a quote, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards which I think is quite uh, fascinating just in understanding. It doesn't give you any um, prescription on how to live life, but it does uh, make sense that we can understand it backwards. Everything makes sense. We sometimes say hindsight is twenty twenty. You can look back and understand exactly what happened and what could have been done or should have been done differently. But we can only live our lives forwards. And this is something I think about sometimes when we consider, even right now I'm deliberating, thinking about things of how to live a life, let's say, how to live a good life, 
But of course, while you're doing that, your life is happening and going too. We have to find some balance of how much do you deliberate and think, and then also how much do you live? You have to experience things. And so if we only think and deliberate, um, life will pass us by. And so oftentimes people actually choose this as a refuge from living life. They go into the thinking mode instead of experiencing things. Let's think about relationships. Let's think about work. Let's think about these things rather than actually experiencing them, which creates anxiety, which of course is the, the uh, theme of this book that I'll talk about today. But another quote of his I like is, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced, which to me is also points to this nature of life and things that it's not this, okay, you figure it out, especially we can turn online social media and people writing pop psychology types of books, often with the approach or mindset of a life hack, or if you do this, it makes something in life simple. Relationships become easy if you do these three things. Work becomes simple if you do these five things. Um, when really it's it's not that we just solve problems or things get solved. Life is about experiencing, and life is much more about going through those problems. And so this book, actually, the concept of anxiety, of course, as a psychologist, I was drawn to that title. Uh, and there is a lot of description, deliberation, looking at a biblical perspective. So that was something that at times made it harder for me to connect with the the book and this work. Of course, even saying that, I approach it with humility that uh, Kierkegaard is regarded as one of the great thinkers um, of the last few centuries. And so to criticize his work, I, I'm mindful of where I'm coming from in my approach, but just sharing my experience in reading it, because the book revolved around this original sin and revolved a lot around Christianity and the Bible and that perspective. And so a lot of the book related to original sin and these uh, scenes from the Bible and then looking at things while analyzing what happened there. But for me, it was hard to connect because I think, of course, that that's not a real event or something we should think of God creating Adam and then creating Eve from his rib and the snake came and um, convinced Eve essentially to tell Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge and and all of that that happened that this was this original sin and of course there's a lot of metaphor and analogy there and allegory that can be important and has significance especially throughout human history because of how impactful Christianity has been in the modern world but when we're analyzing what happened there to try to understand the human experience at times uh, for me it was hard to connect to that going so in depth essentially accepting that as some kind of truth and then trying to understand it so um, to me it's a reminder of how much we all approach anything with a mental framework biases whether you want to call it dogma or not coming from a religion or some type of way of thinking whether you realize it or not, you have a way of thinking that's been influenced by uh, things you've been exposed to, things you've understood, things you've read, the prevalent ideas of your time. We can't think in this purely objective way that we strive towards. We can want to go there and try to be mindful of our different biases and things as they come up, but we always have a mental framework that we're operating from. So here, for me, seeing uh, Kierkegaard as this great thinker, um, however, in this lens, trying to explain everything through 
the lens of Christianity and the Bible are not everything but so much, um, made it hard for me to connect to some aspects of that. However, what I really did like about the book and this theme of the concept of anxiety and how it's even relevant, this book was written, I think, something like 180 years ago, or I think 1844, um, and now we're looking at psychology and psychiatry, that he approaches anxiety not as this thing to be removed, which is often how we might think of it, even in the realm of uh, psychology and psychiatry and just people in general, we just think, okay, anxiety is bad. How do we get rid of anxiety? Anti-anxiety medication. What are tips to cure your anxiety or treatment to cure your anxiety? And so he looks at anxiety not as this problem, but at one point that he, he uses this phrase, the dizziness of freedom. And so when we're given freedom of choice and freedom to make decisions and all the realm of endless possibility of things, that creates anxiety. So in some ways, if we take away anxiety, we take away our humanity, our, our being human. And so I, I liked this approach because something you've definitely heard me talk about on this show is how the quote-unquote negative feelings are not bad things. Bad feelings, things that feel bad, are not bad and quite are part of our human experience and are informative to how we actually live a good life and living a meaningful life. So if you just try to get rid of all the bad feelings, you're not going to live a good life, which can seem paradoxical, because if you think a good life means feeling good, we could think it means the elimination of bad feelings. But that's not the case. To live a good life, you actually have to face and embrace the negative, difficult, challenging feelings and experiences in life. You want to have a good relationship, you have to have difficult conversations. You want to have a strong body, you have to push yourself to do exercises and things that can be difficult and don't feel quite good in the moment, but lead to growth and strength. So we have a tendency, as any biological being does, to go away from a bad feeling. But if we take that always, that shortcut or that short-handed way of approaching life to go away from the bad, we live a life that's quite meaningless or becomes empty. And we also hurt ourselves in the physical sense. If you just do what feels good, you often won't stay active. You will consume things that are bad for you, from foods that are bad for you to drugs and things that could be bad for you, if you just turn towards the immediately good feeling. So that mindset is something I strongly value, and that was um, very strongly made, this point that anxiety is not this thing to get rid of. And even uh, I, I, he was in some way alluding to what I'm assuming psychiatry was doing with pills and powders and enemas trying to get rid of this that it's actually part of being human that we experience anxiety when we try to understand. He puts in the framework of this hereditary sin of sinning and what we decide to do, but in general, um, to me, of just like this experiencing life. Because even if we think of what allows us to have anxiety, as he actually does a good job of um, differentiating between anxiety and fear, we tend to think of fear or describe fear as something you are specifically afraid of that is a threat in the moment. So um, uh, an animal is approaching you that's scary, you feel afraid because you feel a threat. Anxiety is more about possibilities and about things in the future. Often actually anxiety is actually something that you don't have a specific worry about because that would be, I just said the word worry, like you worry about something happening tomorrow. Anxiety is more this feeling that comes up of the unknown 
that can happen, which is part of um, our ability to anticipate and imagine things. So this is part of being human. Um, most other animals, really, we can't know what's going on in their mind, but from what we can see, they're not thinking about, well, I wonder what's going to happen in two years, or I wonder if this is going to be the right way to live my life or do certain things. But the fact that we can, as human beings, think about past and future and think about things that are not present, counterfactuals, things that could have happened and things that can happen in the future, this is something that makes us intellectually, we would say, quite, um, I don't want to use the word superior, but does give us some abilities that other animals don't have that we would consider part of being human, that we can think about these things. But this same ability comes with it, this experience that we can worry about things. If I can imagine uh, infinite futures of different things, I, of course, can imagine things that would make me feel anxious, worry about something. So I can think, what if this happens tomorrow? If I couldn't think about tomorrow, I couldn't worry about tomorrow. But just that human possibility or that human capability of thinking about tomorrow can actually allow me to feel anxiety as well. So I appreciated that argument that anxiety is this very real way of being human, that I can imagine things, I have the possibilities, this dizziness of freedom, which makes me human, but it also can make me feel anxious. And so it's not to find a way to get rid of anxiety. That's actually, he makes it uh, as if people who don't have anxiety or beings or beasts that don't have anxiety, that's lower. The lower uh, kind of status you have in that way mentally, you won't experience anxiety. So it's something we have to embrace, face, and take on. Um, and actually, in the next segment, I might talk about some anxieties that we all can experience, things like death anxiety, a very powerful one, an intense one, that again, because we can think about our death in a certain way, we can also have death anxiety, uh, a gift and a curse. But it's not something we can just get rid of, but something we can find a way of incorporating or making sure it doesn't interfere with our lives. Um, but this book, uh, coming back to it, Soren Kierkegaard's book, The Concept of Anxiety, I'm glad I read it because he is a, a, uh, such an intellectual force, and I wanted to read one of his works, and this is the one that appealed to me because of the title and the theme, The Concept of Anxiety. As I mentioned, there was a heavy focus on the Bible and Christianity, which is was the way of philosophical thought, and he talks about other philosophers as well throughout the book. So it was quite deep and complex, but um, as I mentioned, this theme of anxiety and how it's part of being human and not something we have to get rid of was something that I very much resonated with. And after the break, I'll continue on some thoughts related to the different anxieties we can experience as human beings that we can't necessarily get rid of and nor should we, but maybe some thoughts on how do we incorporate it into our lives in a way that doesn't interfere but might even add to it. So let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Concept of Anxiety by Soren Kierkegaard, or the Danish pronunciation, Son Kierkegaard. Um, Again, my Danish pronunciation is actually not quite accurate, but as close as I can get for now. Um, and I wanted to continue looking at different anxieties we might experience, or specifically I'll start with death anxiety. We'll see where we go from here, because I think this is 
one of those things I mentioned in the previous segment that we can't uh, have or we can't be human without having this possibility of of having this type of anxiety. So it's kind of this gift and a curse that we have, that we can think about things, imagine things that are not present, which allows us to plan and prepare and and make things and invent things and um, prepare for the future, take care of ourselves in a variety of ways. So there's so much we get from being able to imagine things that don't currently exist and imagine the past or think about the past. But like many things, it comes with some negatives as well. And one of them is anxiety overall. But then when we look at something like death anxiety, you only can have death anxiety if you can think about death or imagine death, your own and others. And in that way, then experience this anxiety related to your own death. Now, there is a variety of factors at play when we look at something like death anxiety or different aspects to death anxiety. So one I'll, I'll start with is a, a common one related to, well, what happens to me, what happens to us after we die? And this can be very unsettling for people that they don't know and they can be afraid. Of course, I was talking about how heavy the, the Bible plays in the book that I was discussing today, but we hear about heaven and hell. So what if I'm going to hell and this, it's this horrible experience for all of eternity Um, of course maybe I'm going to heaven and that would be beautiful and really nice and so people can have different uh, expectations or beliefs about what's going to happen to them after they die and that itself can create anxiety of course for some it could create a sense of calm or something they are looking forward to that I will get to experience heaven or whatever afterlife you might believe in so for some people this uh Anxiety can come from what they think might happen, but also just that unknown. Because another aspect of anxiety is the unknown is what makes us anxious. This is why we can say that when you take some kind of medical test that you have some concerns about, sometimes that waiting is the hardest part. Because even if you get bad news, now you can do something about it. But just that unknown part where you feel like you're suspended in thin air can feel very uncomfortable and that creates this anxiety of what's going to happen so the unknown part of what happens after death can be something that people can have strong feelings about that can create anxiety Um, one that i hear often is this sense of well what if it's like nothingness what if you just die and that's it and so there's this weird feeling it brings up for us of like okay well what does that mean that you know there's there's nothingness and here's where again our way of thinking or our ability of thinking that we can imagine certain futures and try to imagine what that would feel like past present or something that's not even possible science fiction imagine something that hasn't happened before Um, it gets in our way I would say because when people imagine you don't feel anything let's say there's nothing after you die well then you wouldn't feel it but the thing is we imagine feeling that nothingness and that's what I think feels so weird and even creepy for people it's like Imagine feeling nothingness, but forgetting that if you don't exist when you die, then you won't be feeling anything. There won't be a you to be feeling nothing. And I know that itself might create a death anxiety of not existing, uh, but that feeling of nothingness that can be creepy, I think even right now I'm imagining some dark, vast, you know, something like almost like outer space where it's just darkness and nothingness in that way, even though there's something there, there. Um, But again, if you died in that way and that's the experience, you won't feel anything. So if that's what you're afraid of, that's just our 
brain tricking us. It's actually a similar way that I think we trick ourselves when we think too much about what's my legacy going to be. Now, I don't think that's actually a bad way of thinking because if we think about what are the ways that we want to be remembered, we might live a better life and do the right things more often. So that part of it can be good. But being preoccupied with how we're going to be remembered, it's because what we're doing is thinking, okay, I'm dead. But then how would it feel if people are talking about me in a certain way? But you're dead. You won't be feeling any of the things. So if we get too preoccupied with how people are going to talk about us, we might actually not do some of the right things. And this is why I think when we're doing good things, doing good things for others, what can get in the way is sometimes being preoccupied with, am I going to get the credit for it so that future generations will remember me? Because we think, well, when we think of Einstein and we think of these great thinkers or people who contributed a lot to the world, I want to be one of those people. But you won't be here to experience that, what people are thinking of you and saying about you. So I would say, yes, we want to live a good life and do good things. And because of that, people might rem will remember you positively if you do good things. But don't be so preoccupied, almost like your image after you die, because you won't even be here to experience that. If you think doing good things is good, then just do those things and focus on that and how it's going to be remembered. Try to realize this is a almost like a trick we're playing or we really can't not imagine this future even though or what it's going to feel like to be in this future even if we actually are not in it. But so coming back to this experience of dying and what it's going to feel like, we can feel very afraid of this nothingness. But again, we won't feel that. It's like if I say when you go under anesthesia, you're going to feel nothingness. But we've, if you've experienced that, as I have, you just don't remember it and you come out. So you don't feel nothingness or experience a nothingness. You just don't feel anything. So this is similar. Again, uh, death, anxiety, alert, but you never wake up. So you never come out of that feeling of no, no longer feeling or being um, and, you know, under anesthesia. You just don't exist anymore. And I think that can feel something or can bring up the sense of uh, anxiety that's not existing, which we can look at from several angles, including the sense that as a, a living being, you're trying to preserve yourself, keep yourself alive. And so thinking of not living can make you feel anxious. You know, I'm reminded here, of many clients I've worked with as they've dealt with death anxiety, but also I know Irvin Yalom, who is a, a great thinker in the realm of psychology and psychiatry, and someone who I really respect and appreciate. I had the great honor of doing a session with him. He does single sessions. I think he still does them, so you go online, uh, email him, and he, he actually responded, and that was um, got an appointment a few months after I emailed him. But anyway, I when I've read some of his work or things he's talked about, he had a type of a relation with Rollo May, another big um, uh, thinker in the realm of psychology, psychoanalysis. Uh, and he did what I think it was like treatment, but it seemed like it was, I don't know if it was officially treatment because they had some kind of relationship outside of just the therapeutic relationship. But nonetheless, in exploring with him about his own death anxiety, Irvin Yalom, in his, as the, the client, sharing his death anxiety, uh, Rollo May, who was uh, quite a bit older than him or a bit older than him, it actually triggered some death anxiety in him because he was closer to death. And so he, he was thinking about it in a different way. And I thought that was, that was interesting. And so something I try to keep in mind, uh, and this relates to what I was talking about in the book and, and 
things that Soren Kierkegaard has said about things like anxiety or different feelings is that there's no way to just solve it. Okay, you have death anxiety. I'm going to completely convince you to make it disappear. People will do that. They'll give you reassurances. But I don't see it as something that will just evaporate and disappear completely. Even when I've worked with clients or people ask me about it, I share some of the thoughts I've already shared. I have more that I'll talk about, at least some of them. But, you know, some of these things of, well, if you're worried about not feeling anything, that's you won't be feeling anything or if you feel like it's nothingness or some other thoughts related to that, which might give some degree of comfort, but it doesn't mean that anxiety just disappears completely, that it will just no longer be there. And so when I work with clients and if this does come up, I don't try to completely convince them, oh, you have nothing to worry about. You never need to worry about this. Don't think about this. It's going to be good. It's going to be this way. Obviously, I can't give them some guarantee of what happens after death. And I also do understand that this, to me, is a part of the human experience, that we have to live with this anxiety. And that's the important part. It, living with death anxiety can be challenging. We can be so overwhelmed with death anxiety that it interferes with how we live, and that can be a problem. And so like many of our feelings, I actually think it's more about finding the right balance and the right way of dealing with it rather than completely eliminating it or completely dwelling in it. Either one of those would not be healthy. Because if we get consumed with death anxiety, worrying about our death, fearing our death, not wanting to die so much, we will not live our lives because you're constantly living with this this fear and anxiety and it will consume you. It can consume you so that you won't live your life. That obviously isn't good. But if we go to the other extreme, which I think many of us often operate in this type of mindset, it's almost like this mindset that if you logically ask someone, of course, everyone knows that they die, but we operate as if we will get to live forever, that there is no death. This is in some ways the solution many of us have unconsciously found in dealing with our death anxiety is to function as if we will never die, that I don't have that to worry about. So there always will be a, another time, later time to do something, to have experiences, to fix things, or whatever it might be. There is this sense that we have these infinite tomorrows to do it. And that's kind of how we do a lot of things in life. It's like, well, I'll do it tomorrow or some later time, but not right now. And so to me, this is actually a huge problem because if we operate too far on the other end of the spectrum of thinking that we don't need to fear death at all or we don't need to think about death at all, we end up with the other extreme where we actually don't take our lives seriously enough. So there is this uh, concept that if you don't, recognize the reality of your own death, you won't value your own life enough because you won't recognize that you don't have forever to do everything, to figure everything out, to have every experience, to solve everything. Oh, we'll have that conversation tomorrow. Oh, I can do this later at some point because there's this feeling that we will always have a tomorrow. That's the way we comfort ourselves. But I think we have to, again, this is where comfort sounds like it's better than anxiety, but I think the anxiety is the better way to experience life, to actually recognize, no, I will die. I think there's some Twitter page. Twitter itself might be <laughs> dying. I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but what, it seems like it might be dying or people are talking about it dying. But there's, I think, a whole Twitter page where it basically just tweets every day, someday you will die or one day you will die. Um, and that's also part of Stoic types of philosophies and different mindsets where you 
focus on your death or remind yourself of your death so you take your life seriously. And I think it is a balancing act. How much of that do you do? Are you, uh, how much do you think about that death? But I do think if you don't recognize your own death or that it is inevitable or it is a reality of your life, you won't take your life seriously enough. You won't take on life in a way that I think we all need to. And so after the break, I'll get a little bit more into some of these thoughts on how we approach this balance of not getting consumed by death anxiety, but not completely avoiding or pretending to ourselves that it won't happen. And we'll get into that after the break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So just some last thoughts about death before this this conversation dies on this topic. Um, but looking at death and death anxieties, I was saying to me, it's something that you're not going to erase completely. And the settling thing for most of us is to find something that takes away that anxiety. And actually, religion to some degree plays this role for us, that it is it can be a great remover of anxiety, this sense that there's some certainty, that there is some um, God and these figures that we are all-knowing and all-powerful and take care of everything for us. You don't have to worry about it. We can understand this. I can't say any of it is true or not true, but looking at it just psychologically, I can understand that sense. And even we see that people are more likely to turn towards religion when they're most scared and afraid. You know, even just in a comical way, we see this where if someone is, is freaking out, something's happening, they might pray to God. Or, you know, all of a sudden you're on a roller coaster and you find yourself praying to God, even though you don't consider yourself a religious person. And so we might kind of laugh at that, but we can understand that you're so afraid and looking and feeling out of control, feeling like um, you are uncertain or unsafe in some way, and you are looking for something bigger that can protect you and make you feel safe. And so actually in the book that I talked about, the concept of anxiety by Soren Kierkegaard, there was uh, this notion of this leap of faith he doesn't use that wording but that you uh, and he talks in other places about faith and how it's essentially not just purely based on logic or reason because you can't have that but there's some kind of leap that's being made there and of course but that leap is a jump to something more comforting that makes us feel more okay but to me the sense that we have to be in touch with this reality of our death i know it can sound morbid literally and it could sound dark but I do think of it as so important to value what you do in your life. I've actually myself felt this more. Um, of course, we get older every day, but getting older, looking at life and looking at my own life and thinking about, well, I will one day die. And do I, what am I going to do with this life where I want to make sure I live it in a way that I won't regret? And so that's actually something, uh, The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, a good great book on that topic of regret but one of the things that comes up in that book is that we can look or we can imagine i've done this with clients imagine you're 80 years old 90 years old whatever on your deathbed or near the end of your life and if you look back at your life what do you think you might regret both doing and not doing and what we tend to find is mostly people regret as a quote by mark twain things that they didn't do not the things they did which can really be good advice to keep in mind because very often when we're about to do something like oh what if it doesn't go well 
Uh, what if it, I don't do it right or something happens? I forget. I just won't do it. It's easier not to do it. But these are the things we tend to regret. Or a common one, and it came up in that book, was people are out of touch with an old friend, family member, and they think, oh, but if I reach out, it might be awkward. So that anxiety of the awkwardness makes them not do it. But what they find is most people actually are very happy to hear from you if they haven't heard from you in a long time. And oftentimes both people are feeling that, oh, it's too weird or awkward, so they don't reach out, which is quite sad because they might actually want to reconnect and uh, get close again or at least have some connection. And that was actually a common regret that people had is losing touch or losing relationships with people over time. So it could be good to reflect on your life and think, okay, what might I regret if I did or didn't do, especially the didn't do's, and to then push ourselves to, to go towards those things, do like a regret audit, and then come back and live a life as much as possible that would not be one we would regret. That can actually be quite powerful, but we have to accept that our life is finite, that we will one day die if we want to then uh, do this. But if we want to avoid thinking about death, avoid the anxiety completely, then we unfortunately might not live the life that we want or would feel is a more meaningful life for us. So I have a lot of thoughts on this topic, but I do want to get to some callers. We do have a caller on the air. Let's go to the caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, um, I was calling because I had a question. I'm 30 years old, mm-hmm. and um, I'm in a relationship with this guy who's all, who's 31. Um, we, we're both co-workers, but we're both dentists. And um, we were talking about kind of like the future and everything, and um, I really, really want to have kids. And so I told him that, and at first he was like, before anything, he was like, oh, I'm not interested in having kids. And so, um, and then I kept on asking why. And he said it's because he thinks that depression runs in his family. Okay. Um, and he he's like, I like kids, but I would feel really bad and really guilty um, if I gave, like, he thinks that there's, like, he thinks he has, like, a gene for depression. Mm-hmm. Um to my kids and he said that he also dealt with depression and he he says that he still does he says he said that he's like fine now um but like four or five months ago he went through this whole phase where he was really depressed and then in high school he was really depressed um and so by the end of the conversation though he said that well like this is like something that because I told him that I could, wouldn't be able to continue the relationship with him unless I knew that um, he was, like, he he would ha- have kids. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the conversation, he said, well, it's not that I, like, don't like kids. Like, I like kids. I like working with kids. And, like, even when they come to work, like, I like them and everything. And it's not that I don't like them. It's just that I don't want to pass anything to them and then feel guilty about it. Okay. So, um... That's, uh, I mean, I don't know how, what his depression is like or what he experiences, uh-huh. but, uh-huh. but, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, I wouldn't discourage someone from having kids if they've been depressed themselves, because, uh, uh-huh. it's part of many people's genes or family backgrounds uh-huh. are going to have some level of, of those things. Now, here's also that you can't convince him to want kids, but if that's his reason, only reason, yeah. um, I wouldn't, to me, it wouldn't be a reason not to have kids. But again, I'm talking to you, not him. So I don't know uh-huh. what his experience is. Uh, also, how long have you been dating? Um, We've, like, 
four months. We've known each other for four or five months. Okay. Not that long, but yeah. it's something that, like, I know that I want. Sure. So that's why I brought it up so early on. No, I don't think um, it's actually bad. I think it's that's great. I, I encourage people to, I know... It's unfortunate people are so shy about these conversations or they can be afraid if I bring up marriage and kids as even a possibility, the person can think I already want it with them or I'm already pushing things along. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's important that if you know you don't want the same things and there's some important things you do want and the other person doesn't, to not even begin the relationship because, you know, it's essentially a waste in that way to then get close and then now, you know, a year later find out that you want different things. So I think that's that was very important that you brought that conversation up, that it's something you really want and you do have time, but you don't want to waste your time either um, in that way. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so was when was this conversation? This was only a couple weeks ago. This okay. Is, I think two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. And so uh, what's happened since then? Did you, you know, because it seems like this could be a deal breaker for you if he didn't want kids, but did you get to that kind of conclusion? Yeah, so his conclusion was that, like, the very end of the conversation was him saying, oh, okay, well, I, like, if I'm with someone who wants kids, like, who wants kids, that's something that I would, like, I would be okay with. And then... And then he was like, but also something, too, is that, like, I'm in, I'm not depressed right now, so, like, I'm more optimistic. So it's like, I'm thinking in sense, too, but, like, if I get really depressed, I don't know what's going to happen. But, yes, like, as of now, I would have kids. Would, okay. Um, you know, so a few things, obviously, he's bringing up some, not just about having kids, but about how he is, what he goes through with his yeah. depression he's that's saying right now yeah. yeah sure yeah i mean that's something it's definitely i mean he's bringing you know came up in this conversation and he brought it up and so we don't want to make him feel like you're judging him about having depression it's a it's a one a thing that people commonly go through or it's common that people experience it but of course people go through it in different ways he he's talking about it like it's this really bad thing now it could he be it's really bad yeah yeah and i asked him if he took like medications or anything and he said well they don't really like work or i i take them only when i feel it coming on but um mm -hmm. i there's like side effects to it too that like it doesn't completely cure it it just like he said like when he's like really depressed like he sleeps a lot but like when he takes the medication he isn't able to sleep so like that's kind of like a good thing because then he's able to function but yeah he, he like he described it as very very bad yeah well i mean yeah and it seems like he has tried medication although that's and even what i was talking about before it's not like depression or anxiety something we just erase but uh it can become debilitating so it's not to undermine the suffering that someone might uh -huh. go through when they're depressed uh, but so he's tried some treatments. Obviously, therapy can also be helpful for depression. It doesn't have to be just medication, or it could be even both, possibly. Um, and and the thing that's tough is he's saying it's very bad. Now, clearly, he got through dental school and is working as a dentist, and so he's able to function at some level. How it is yeah. to be in a relationship with him, if he's going through depression, you don't know yet. It could yeah. be something worth exploring, not just in this context of having kids, um, and it's not to undermine the depression he's going through, but people can often be very harsh if they are depressed on themselves. So this guilt he's talking about, people who are depressed tend to be more prone to guilt about things. So there's like, oh, I'd make my you know son or daughter have 
depression and then I'd feel really bad about that. Um, but everyone has something. So I, I, I don't know if it's to me again, I wouldn't say not to have kids because of that. I would want you know to, for you to think more about, well, really, what is it like? Talk more about that experience. It seems like you did with him a bit, but really know what it's like to be with him. What, what did that make you think or feel about your relationship with him, the way he described becoming depressed and what he goes through? I think it's kind of scary because I don't know if I'm like the the kind of person to be able to like not get up like you know like if I see someone around me who's like sad and depressed I feel like that would make me like anxious and sad and depressed too mm-hmm. um and like he says like and he'll say oh like I don't like or like he's something along lines of like oh I don't really like myself and like and then he'll be like oh you know you seem to really like yourself and I'll be like yeah I mean I like I don't yeah like I don't hate myself kind That's of thing good. and he's like yeah I don't know I don't really have anything nice to ever say about myself hmm. and like he'll say stuff like that too but like yeah yeah it does worry me because sure. I don't know if I'm like strong enough to be able to support someone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who has depression and it, if it's bad I think that would make me like even like the conversation even made me a little anxious because I was like well like it's kind of scary yeah I mean um, it it can be a little bit scary we don't know exactly that's part of the scary is this unknown I was talking about anxiety actually today the book that I was talking about but this unknown of it can be scary Um, and you know what he's describing even some people say depression it might be more than just like this disease. It could also be like a personality type. There's been different discussions of like labeling it either a personality disorder or personality, but he has some of those traits that you're, you know, that we look at like, you know, the self-esteem or how he sees himself lacking of self-love or self-compassion and being, you know, hard on himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's like, sometimes I think he's just very mean to himself. Yeah. Right. It does seem that way that, and even the way he said it about you in this kind of playful way, but like, oh, you seem like love yourself, but kind of, which is good that if you have that and you feel good about yourself, um, but it, it could make it something concerning for you. Now, there's a few things. One is being with someone who's depressed, of course, takes a toll on on us because, you know, how they're feeling, it's harder to connect and relate and they can be so down on things and it has a, has a big impact. The other thing is, at times people can feel a sense of responsibility for how their partner feels that, mm-hmm. okay, if he's depressed, I'm supposed to make him happy or I should be doing something or it means I'm lacking somehow as a girlfriend mm-hmm. or wife or whatever. I've seen this a lot in relationships where people can feel this pressure. And that's something that I would, whether it's with him or with anyone you're with, to to be aware of that because... Yes, of course, we care about how our partner feels and we do have an impact. So it's not to say we don't influence it at all, but to feel we're responsible for what they go through, that puts a lot of pressure on us. And even the relationship that I'm supposed to make you feel good all the time or not make you feel bad. Um, You know, we're getting close to a commercial break and I don't want to to stop just here because, you know, I want to explore a little bit more what you're feeling about what he said about how he is when he's depressed, but also what... I think could be good to look at is something has attracted you to him. Obviously, we're talking about some of these things about his depression and, and other things, but you clearly got attracted to him for more than just that, although it could be part of this. Maybe he's a very deep person as well, which can happen when someone is depressed. But after the break, I want to talk a bit more about what attracted to you, you to him and the relationship, and we can explore some things related to that. How does that sound? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Sure. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Hi, yes. All right. You know, before, I, I know I'd asked you some things that I wanted to hear from you. One thing I did want to mention, I realized I forgot to say before the break, I was talking about your sense of responsibility towards him about how he feels. Um, also, though, from his side, especially the way he talks about himself and how down he can be on himself, someone who's depressed can have this sense of I'm burdening my partner. And of course, there is a reality of that. It can be difficult and has is challenging at times, but there can feel uh, an ex- excess of guilt that can make it even harder to then even be in a relationship because they think they should never make the other person down or feel so responsible and they're already feeling down on themselves and they might, you know, pull away or not even want to start the relationship. So that's another thing that can play a part in, in this dynamic of him and how you described him so far. But as I mentioned before the break, uh, you know, these things about his depression didn't come out explicitly till later on in the relationship. What drew you or attracted you to him to begin with? Um, yeah, because I only found out like two weeks ago when mm-hmm. we started talking about the kids and like we really got into it and then he told me why. Um, but beforehand, I think like he has a really good personality. He's super funny. Um, I think we have like the same interests because like, you know, we're both doing the same job, but like, mm-hmm. it's just, he re- he's really funny. Like, he has a very good personality, and like, he's very, very smart. So, like, the things he says, I'm like, oh, like, like, he's very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, though, too, is like, I am pretty religious, and then, I mean, I'm religious, but he doesn't believe in God at okay. all. Like, he's atheist. And so, yeah. that is another thing that, like, kind of bothers me a little. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what what religion do you believe in? Muslim. Okay. And so he's not religious at all? Uh, he, he used No, he used to be. And then he said that as he was growing up, he realized that, like, or he, he says that, like, there's so much disease and so much, like, bad in the world. Like, how can mm. there even be a God? Because the world should be a better place if there's a God kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, like, his logic behind it. Um, okay. Um, yeah, he definitely yeah. believes. Okay, and is that something important for you both in your partner and also in, in having kids and how they'll be raised? Um, I mean, we haven't really got, like talked about the raising children part because it was like we just got yeah. to, like the okay to have children part. So I didn't like after we said that I just kind of I didn't really bring it up. Like I feel like I kind of got my answer and then I just was like, okay. Yeah, but I mean Um, for you personally, whether it's with him or not, uh, is that something important for you how you raise your kids? Like, Yeah, oh yeah, I do. Like I do want it to be a part of their lives. Obviously like not like not to an extreme extent, but I mean I do, yeah, I do want it to be like a part of their lives. I do want them to like be somewhat religious, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that that's something that you would also have to um, discuss with him and reflect on for yourself, like what we know what you want and, and all that. Um, I'm trying to also get it, you know, he's expressed his uh, depression quite clearly, trying to get a sense yeah. of, of you. And I don't know if, you know, just it's obvious we're talking on the air, there are lots of things that can affect how you're going to present, but I, I can feel some anxiety in you, but I'm not sure. I mean, we all have yeah. some, but do you, do you consider <laughs> yeah. yourself an anxious person? Like, I feel like it's very situational. Yeah. yeah. Like, during, like, when I was in school, I was super anxious. But then after I graduated and I started working, I haven't been. Like, 
Okay. But I did. Like, during school, I was, and I did see a therapist, and that actually helped me a lot. And I told him that, about that, too. I said, you should probably, like, you can see a therapist. And he's like, oh, well, I've seen two, and it hasn't helped. Um, but I was like, no, like, mine really helped. Like, I feel like <laughs> that was part of the reason why I, like, was able to, like, function and get through school. Okay, yeah. And look, school, dental school is going to be stressful. I don't know how, how much it was affecting how anxious you were. But that, that makes sense. I'm glad you're saying it's subsided a bit. Anxiety is a part of life, but it can become... But I still, but, yeah. No, but yeah. I'm still, like, anxious about... Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm anxious about this situation right now because I don't know what to do. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like I'm at the point in my life, too, where, like, all my friends have gotten married and everything. And, like, I've, like, talked to, like, not, like, quite a bit, but I feel like I've talked to enough guys and, like, I've had like past relationships too so like i mean i've been through this but this one's very different and like i've never like you know and yeah, yeah it's just different yeah with, I'm, with the problems that i feel like i have with this well you're, you're saying despite the problems it still feels different like it still feels like there's a no, lot of no good? the problems are what's different i've never like oh. had anyone tell me like they don't want to have kids or i've never had anyone um be like oh no i'm atheist yeah. Or that I'm like dealing with depression. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the, the having kids, you know, even that, I, I do think it's worth, obviously, you could have more than, probably more than that conversation with them about it because, you know, this like, I, well, if someone else wants it, I'll have kids, isn't often the best place to be starting with you you want to be with someone who wants kids themselves you know you should both want it because if it's kind of let's all go along with it because you want it that's not the best place to take something on like having kids you know so that's something to to look at um uh-huh. but you know yeah there's this like way of he, like, yeah the only thing stopping him from having kids is like like the chance that he might pass on his depression he doesn't want yeah which i'm you know i can get that like i said there's uh there's a way like the guilt that i'm hearing and how you describe that to me Mm -hmm. seems pretty significant rather than the way you know you're seeing him now you've only known him or been dating him four months but you know people that are very that have depression can still live good lives i know that sounds strange it's not to undermine the experience of depression but it's not that i'd say well he shouldn't we shouldn't have any more people like him you know um because of of what he goes through and and all that i would hope he tries therapy again even in what he was saying it's not that if he goes to a therapist or does therapy or even medication it's just going to take away his depression completely and never comes back it's just all good but it could make it more manageable or help him to some degree so uh, you know, not looking at it as a black and white, and it's not something that will just be cured. People who get depressed sometimes it does come back, even if they do all the right things and everything they can. Um, it could come back, but it can. We want to do everything we can to help it. You know, uh, maybe dentistry. Some things are more um, kind of black and white in a way. You know, like you treat the tooth or you remove the tooth or you do certain things. And in psychology, often things are a lot more gray, where it's not that. Okay, either we take get rid of his depression, or he should never doesn't have any more. He shouldn't have kids and become, you know, there should be no more of him. It's that he's probably going to be depressed and he's living life, but I don't think that means he shouldn't have children in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this like a very a caricature of you and him. It's like you are this more high energy, anxious kind of person, and then he's just like this low, depressed kind of making jokes about life kind of a, a way that I'm seeing yeah. the two of you. Yeah. I don't know if that's how you actually are, but there's just this feeling that I'm getting and hearing you talk about you and him. 
Yeah, no, I'm definitely very anxious about this situation. Yeah. Because I just, like, I don't know what to do, and I don't know if I'm making the right choice, and it's, like, a big decision, like, Mm -hmm. just to even, like, you know, like, to pursue it, and then to get more emotionally invested, and, like, all this is just a lot, so I don't want to, I guess, like, make the wrong decision, but then also, another thing about him, I feel like he's very hard on himself, Mm -hmm. like, he'll even say it, too, but, like, I don't know, like, with, like, he messes up something at work, to be like, oh, yeah, like... Oh, like I messed it up. Now I have to go read about it and I have to figure it out and I have to never do that again. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think with me, like if I mess something up, like I'll feel bad about it and I'll be like, oh, yeah. But then I'll let it go. And like yeah. when he messes up with something, I'll be like, you yeah, know, it's fine. Like it happens. Like accidents happen. We're human. It's okay. And yeah. then he's always like, oh, you're like, you're so nice. You're so nice to yourself or you're so nice. Like, to, yeah, basically, because I was like, well, if it happened to me, like, I mean, I feel like I tried my best, and, like, mm-hmm. it happens, it's an accident, like, it's not that, you know, I mean, it is a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal to, like, think about it, and then try to, like, because, like, what he does is he'll think about it, and then he'll go, like, research it, like, five, five like, five million hours, and then try to, like, fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of this black, that, like, the black uh-huh. and white, the harshness, even the way you said, like, there's this problem... And I have to do all this so it never happens again. For some reason, it made me think of even like him, him and having kids. It's like, oh, there's this depression, so it should never happen again. Like there shouldn't be this depression again, you know. And so, but there is this very like black and white way of thinking that he seems to have, and he seems to appreciate your um, that you're more kind, compassionate to yourself, and that mindset. But yeah, it does seem like there's a stark contrast in how you and him think about things yeah because he's like oh i wish that like i was more like you and he's like you're generally a positive person but like i always like i'm just very like pessimistic but then he's very nice to like other people like if i'm complaining about something from work he'll be like oh no like it's okay like they it would like don't be mad at them or like or like something like that where like and then I get frustrated because I'm like well no like they, they you know like they deserve to be not deserve to be punished but like they deserve like some sort of like reformation but like mm-hmm. he's like oh no like one of his like co-workers for example at work like keeps on messing up something that like affects him but then he feels bad to like tell her to like you know like stop doing that or like complain so that they can at least like do something to like fix, like you know fix what yeah. she's doing and like even with me if i complain about something he'll be like oh well yeah but they like go no da da yeah but like that i don't get and then that annoys me because i'm like no like yeah you know, if you do something wrong at work like, you need some sort of consequence because it's gonna affect like it affects me right well you know it's it, what's uh kind of funny there's like you're talking about him him being too hard on himself but then here you feel like he's like too soft on other people or not wanting yeah. a, a consequence or something um and there could be this way that he's maybe too good at thinking of other people's perspective or their feelings and not his own and now that you and him yeah. are closer uh-huh. he's doing the same thing with you where it's like if you're having an issue with someone he thinks about them more than you and you kind of feel like hey what about me and this is annoying me in some way why aren't you like worrying about what i'm going through but it seems like he does that to himself no, he didn't. No, he, um, like, when that thing happened, um, he was like, yeah, like, no, like, that's not fair to you. No, like, okay. I get, and like, he, and then I was like, yeah, how can you, I was like, and then I got annoyed, and I was like, you can only pick one person to feel bad about. It's either <laughs> me or, like, the other person. And he was like, no, no, I'm sorry, it's you. 
Okay. We, like. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would actually. I, I get what you're saying, especially if he's your your partner. <laughs> you really want him to show like he's with you, not like both yeah. sides. Now, what's interesting hearing you say that is that um, you know people who are depressed or who have been through depression, I should say, they actually tend to be better at seeing multiple perspectives. There's this great mm-hmm. book by um, Nasser. Raemi, a first-rate madness, where he talks about actually different world leaders throughout history and how some of them, not despite, but because of their mental illness, were good leaders. And he, with depression, he talks about Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln, that he thinks that because of, he actually suffered from severe depression in a lot of his life, was able to see both sides of what was going on, the North and the South, in a way that was able to lead to some kind of reconciliation because of his depression and because of that. So maybe you're seeing that there's this way that he's able to, you know, or he goes to everyone's feelings, okay, your feelings, their feelings, which can have some benefits in some moments, but also sometimes it's like losing sight of your own feelings, or in this case, your feelings. You're like, hey, care about me, not like this other person or what's going on for them. So um, it's kind of an interesting thing that it might be even related to this kind of depressive mindset that he sees all the perspectives at once. Because I feel like he doesn't stand up for himself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's also, I mean, you know, these all can relate this sense of not loving himself enough to set those boundaries or to protect and take care of himself. And, and it's interesting. There's, you know, these things about you and him that are different that could lead to conflict or issues, or it does seem like you both are learning from each other too. I mean, what do you think you see from him? Are there things that you recognize? Okay, I can be more this way that he is, because there's a few ways you've brought up about you that he might see, like being more self-compassionate, things like that. What are things, are there things about him that you admire that you'd like to be more that way? Um, I think like he's very like, like he gets very dedicated to certain things mm-hmm. and I feel like I would like to be more like that and I even tell him I'm like cause like even at work like he's very like he's very very good like for the amount of like he's like very objectively speaking he's like really good at um, teeth like what um, we do <laughs> yeah, yeah dentistry yeah and that's, that's because he like he puts time like he puts so much time into it he goes to so many courses mm-hmm. he like he's very like dedicated to things that I think he likes. Yeah. Or, I mean, like he puts, I mean, this is where, you know, things are not all good or all bad. It's like the same being so dedicated, doing things can lead to being too extreme sometimes or being too hard on himself too, might be related to each other. So this is often why, uh, you know, rarely is a personality characteristic all good or all bad. It can be good in some relations or some context, but also especially bad in extremes. So, you know, these are things about the personality and different things that are important, of course, in just being in relationship with him. So, and yeah. I think he's like, and I think he's a very nice and caring person. Like, I don't think he would ever like do anything like conniving or anything mean mm-hmm. like I think like it, whenever he like he feels like I'm upset over something like that whole like pick a side thing I feel like he like he felt bad and he like he said sorry and like he was like oh no no like I appreciate that too that like he's very considerate mm-hmm. yeah he takes into account my feelings and I don't think he's the type of person to ever like I don't know, ever do something mean purposely or like 
Yeah. You know, like, no, no, I get what you're saying. Anything like that, I don't think he's that type of person. No, I don't get that sense at all. I think you feel too guilty about it. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, there's almost too much guilt, which um, might, yeah, keep him from doing certain things. But yeah, that the guilt will get in the way in other ways, which is, is not quite good. So, you know, there's things about him you like. There's some things you mm-hmm. are concerned about. There are some these big questions about your future together if it's aligned at all you know and that's what you're trying to figure Uh out and i think it's good that you brought up these conversations and to keep having them um not like to to like keep dwelling on something but to make sure you have some level of clarity that to me it's does he want kids not like okay if you want kids and we were together i would be okay with it if his only reason is the depression to me that's not a reason not Uh to have kids Uh, i think Uh that's you know that would be okay but there's stuff about you and him the religion thing is a, it can be pretty big you know if you're very religious and it's such an important part of you you have to ask yourself like will you feel like he doesn't quite get you or uh you know it can lead to issues down the line you don't have to be the same in your religious beliefs but it can lead to conflicts especially when we have kids and then how we want to raise the kids so i mean is that something for you how to how he sees your religious belief or anything has that shown up in any way um, I mean, I've brought it up. I've brought it up. And, um, like, that, yeah, like, I think he knows that I, he knows that I think it's an issue because I, I do. I think it's, like, an issue. Um, and I do bring it up. And, I mean, he doesn't, like, he doesn't really say anything about it. But then I'll be like, like, something will happen. And I'll be like, how can you not think there is a God? Like, if, like this is happening like how did this happen like you don't th- i don't think it's coincidence and he'll be like oh no like it, it is coincidence or um i'm trying to think just like stuff like that yeah. he'll Oh, well, I mean, like, but the, you know, you don't have to get into the details of the religious, you know, the, the debate itself. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of and because and, and I get it. You're, you know, you're for you. It seems so obvious, and then to him, it seems so obvious too. That's yeah. how these things can be. Uh-huh. And so, you know, yeah. you, it's not bad to have these. You know, it's a, it could also be an intellectual, but conversation to, to try to convince each other. You're probably just going to get more frustrated. But I could see that you care about this. Not just oh, you know, you want him to see it this way, but when you're tr- thinking of him as a partner you want to feel aligned with him and this is a way where you feel misaligned and you know you probably are a little bit worried about that and like the future if you're Mm -hmm. saying that it's important for you so there are these pretty big future things that you want to be mindful of i think the kids issue is a big one um the religion is another one and of course him in the depression and what that looks like i do get the sense which is it's kind of sad people who are depressed are so hard on themselves in general and so then he could have this feeling like oh you has he ever said like would you want to be with me or does that ever concern him or about you and him in a relationship long term because of his depression Um, like isn't him i ever asked him or has he ever has he ever shown that he's worried about that in some way no okay Okay. Well, that can be good. I'm, yeah. I mean, look, it's 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 part of his life, part of life. People go through these things, and so I wouldn't think that's you know many people um, obviously are depressed and in, in very happy but marriages. He, yeah. Like he keeps saying that, like, oh, this is me. Like, this is me, really good. Like, this is me, really good. But like, once I go through that, like, yeah, phase, like, then it's like it's completely different, and I'm completely empty. And like he was like, I felt soulless. Well, that's a th- I mean, that sounds to be like his also his anxiety about, oh, when I become depressed, how are you going to feel about that? And you're you're a little you're anxious about that also. Now you can decide to go through it and see what it's like. I think these other questions are important to figure out, because if you're 
just want different things and you want different things. Um, but if you do, then you can go through it and see what it's like if and when he does get that way. And we, you, sometimes you can't know until you experience it. Like, is it something you can tolerate? The more you guys are on the same page about it, the better. And, you know, clarifying and well, he might need more space or more support. And then you have to t make sure you take care of yourself, too, within all of that. And there's a lot of things you can figure out there. But I think these bigger questions about having kids... I get the sense he wants to have kids. It's just this depression thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, like, even yeah. at work, like, we see a lot of kids. And, like, he's always so, like, happy and excited. Like, if you looked at him, you would never think that, like, he doesn't like kids or yeah. he doesn't want kids and that he feels depressed. Like, you yeah. you would never put either of those two together, like, about him. Well, it seems like he um, does want kids. And, look, depression, this is one of those... Um, it's another insight into how we don't know the battles that people are fighting and what they're going through, you know, because people present a certain way and we wouldn't imagine they're depressed or go through certain things. And I even uh, hesitate to make this comparison because I don't want to say his, you know, what's going to happen to him. But, you know, Robin Williams was very depressed, but people thought he was so uh -huh. fun and funny and, you know, would have never thought yeah. that. So, you know, these yeah. things are meant, uh, people and human beings are very complex. We go through lots of things and he seems to be a very deep person, but... Part of that depth is this sadness and depression that he also goes through. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've we're kind of getting to the the end of the another segment here. I don't know if you did. You have any questions that we didn't get to that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, like so there is. Like, so let yeah, let me put you on hold. Then we'll we'll talk okay. after the break. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. back let's go back to the caller caller are you still there hi yeah yes okay so you said you had some questions i didn't want to i did kind of cut you off before the break but i wanted to give you a chance to ask Thanks. those before we wrap um up. i my question is like is it like is the like this depression usually like if he continues to take his medications and everything like is it controllable because i don't want to always have to be worried like for the rest of my life like of his depression like I don't know like him going through these like like every year I don't know every other year I don't even know like I don't even know how it works like every yeah. two years or something of like just this whole period where it's like horrible well you know like, I don't think I'm yeah. I don't think I'm like strong enough for that like I don't think I'm mentally able to handle that well you know even that when we say when you say that we don't know what that is going to look like depending on how uh -huh. how it affects them how bad it is but as far as you know we say controllable um it's hard to say you know because people there's some people that have had one depressive episode and never had another one there's some that have them every he said he's had multiple like he yeah. said that he had like it happened in high school and he just didn't know what it was and he was just like Googling it because it was like he's sad and then but he was sleepy and he like did all like so that and then um and I don't know how many more times after that it happened but then he said like the last time it happened it was like seven months ago like six seven months ago okay like it, it but for how long he said it was like a half a year so oh it ended like seven months ago uh-huh uh -huh. okay and then he met you a few months after that yeah, 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 and like, yeah, yeah, okay, like moved and he, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, um, you know, that so, no, go ahead. Oh no, that's that what I was gonna say. Okay, yeah, so, you know, look, these, uh, I, I can understand, 
um, wanting to know like a clear prognosis of what to expect. Is it going to come no. back? Or if you do these three things, will it never come back? There's no guarantee like that. But I do think it is important to do everything you can just for everyone's mental health, not just his, to, to do what's best for yourself. Just like, you know, as a, a dentist, it's not just, okay, come in when you have a cavity. What can you do to help like take care of yourself in between? So we don't have to come see you as often and take, you know, have good dental health. So mental health has a similar type of feature that you can do preventative and protective things like any kind of health. So I would hope you would do those things, but you have to be ready that there's no guarantee he'll never get depressed again. You know, there's nothing we can do that would guarantee he never gets depressed again. Um, uh-huh. It's just something that you would have to be, you know, also not to concern you, but you could get depressed at some point in your life. It's not something that mm-hmm. any of us is immune to. Some of us are definitely more prone to it. And if we've yeah. experienced it. So, you know, it's just something that you would have to be willing to accept. You could, you know, wonder what is he doing to take care of himself, prevent it and help himself live a, you know, a mentally healthier life. I think that's understandable if you're asking and wanting to understand that. But as far as from your side of wanting some guarantee from me or obviously from him, that's not possible. And that would be something you have to just accept. Okay. You know, and as I said, this could be part of his personality might come from certain aspects of what he experiences. So if you're accepting him, this might be part of accepting him. And, and it's not something that you have to feel, you know, you know, you're talking about, you don't want to make a mistake. Um, Sometimes we can't know until we experience it. So you can ask yourself, you can ask him more questions, but even in all the questions you ask him, he might tell you certain things, but you still might not know till you go through yeah. it. So he might say, oh, it's really bad. Or he might say it's not that bad, but then your experience yeah. might be whatever it is, where it's either, you know, manageable, not so bad, really bad. Um, you know, p- depression is something that affects millions of people and lots of them are married and they can even have happy marriages. It might sound paradoxical to have a happy uh-huh. marriage if you're depressed, but depression isn't this thing that's all it can be very consuming but it doesn't mean it just consumes people's life it has to consume their life all the time all in all ways it could be something he goes through and it comes and goes and you deal with it together as a couple okay he goes through this period and he he comes out of it and there's a lot of things you and him would have to figure out of uh, how you deal with it how you would support him but also taking care of yourself making sure you don't feel responsible for his feelings making sure he doesn't feel like too much of a burden because that would just make his depression worse likely so you know there's all these things that you would have to think about um but I, you know to me if someone says oh this person goes to depression i wouldn't say you should break up with them you can't date them because you know yeah. people you know this is just part of human experience that people can go through and still be in relationships so um I, you know you mentioned this anxiety you have about him getting depressed and what that's going to be like i can get that but you can also explore that a little bit more of what is coming up for you and you can also think about okay maybe i want to go to a therapist not because you're going through the kind of anxiety you described before but just in general it can help you explore these things a little bit more deeply and understand yourself what's coming up for you this anxiety of his his potential depression down the line um but you also have these you know very important questions about religion and about having kids mm-hmm. that are going to be very important to, to explore further with him as well okay okay thank you so much sure i appreciate it. you know good, good luck it's going to be uh and one thing i'll say is you're not going to get a 100 percent answer with something like this and that's actually true uh-huh. of most of these kinds of things so that itself creates anxiety because you're not going to be totally certain um but you know wish you the best explore it with him explore it internally and then as i was saying you might have to go through it with him 
and it's hard to know because he might not, you know, he might not get depressed and you won't see what it's like, but that's going to be something you might have to consider experiencing. But I wish you the best with that. Thank you so much. Sure. Nice talking to you. Yeah. Take care. All right. So um, before we go to commercial break, have a few minutes. You know, this is something that having, you know, mental illnesses going through things is part of. Uh, I was saying it's part of the human experience, and it's always something I, I want to be mindful of, not to undermine, because a mental illness can be really, really painful, and it is. A very People truly suffer oftentimes, depending on what they're going through. But also, there is a certain degree of it being part of the human experience and that almost everyone has something in some way. You know, today I was talking about the book, The Concept of Anxiety, and so sometimes people think, well, do you have anxiety? And so, well, everyone has some, or it's part of the human experience even, uh, Kierkegaard would say, if you don't have any, that's a problem. So it is part of what we go through, or depression could be something that we uh, experience, and you can go through it in different ways. Yes, it could be so debilitating that it can become like a black hole to you and people around you, but also can be something that you just go through and you learn how to deal with. And it could be sad to not be able to give people that guarantee. I wish there was a way to say, you know, if you do these things, you'll never have that debilitating depression or anxiety come back. But also the depression and anxiety could be telling us something. The depression itself can have some meaning or value in understanding yourself and what's going on. It could be lots of things, physiological as well, and something else that might not be something you have to learn, but there can be something there. But the point I I wanted to make to her, although didn't want to push her because it's a specific relationship, but to make clear that, okay, if someone tells you they've dealt with some kind of mental illness, I wouldn't say that means you need to end that relationship. Because actually what's happening way more is that people don't know they have a mental illness because they don't want to face it, they're in denial, they don't have insight, and it makes them a far worse partner because they don't have that insight or they don't want to acknowledge it. So they get super angry and rather than recognizing they might have an issue with anger or they might actually even be depressed, which is uh, making them more irritable and they get angry, they blame their partner or you know they you know, don't take any responsibility for it. So oftentimes people who share with you they're going through something like, you know, or have some type of mental illness that's been diagnosed or they've retreat, received treatment, of course it can be alarming at first when you hear it or scary, like, oh, you have this, especially because of all the messages we've heard about mental illness and mental health that makes it seem like, oh, if you have anxiety, you're crazy, or if you get depressed, you're just this really, really sad all the time person that no one wants to be around, or if you have, uh, you know, whatever it is, ADHD, you're going to be this way or whatever the mental illness might be, we have these assumptions that come with it, but realizing that practically everyone has something, um, you know, the percentages, I don't have them off the top of my head, but a good percentage of people have something that's diagnosable that they they go through, something that they experience. Um, or if, it, if it's not diagnosable, we all have tendencies or certain traits or certain features of what would be considered mental illness. It's just part of the human experience is that you're going to go through things just like no one has perfect physical health no one has perfect mental health if they think they have perfect mental health it just means they don't know what's wrong with them just like if someone tells you i have no physical problems it's everything's perfect it just probably means they haven't seen a doctor in a while to get tested for lots of things and get a blood test and do other things to see what might be high or low or what's going on with their physical body so we have to almost expect that anyone you're going to date is having, or you should expect, anyone you date has some issues. It's just whether or not they're aware of them. They know them. 
and you'd rather be with someone that knows and is, has an awareness and then is possibly doing something about it if that's needed about what they're going through rather than someone that doesn't know anything. I wouldn't want anyone to think of uh, hearing about some kind of mental health issue being an automatic deal breaker for a romantic partner. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I wanted to continue in this last segment on what I was discussing at the end of last segment about mental health issues definitely not being a deal breaker because we all have them to a degree. Even if someone tells you they have a a diagnosis, I wouldn't want that to be a deal breaker for people because, first of all, they are so common. So if we say that, then millions of people would be uh, undateable, which I don't think is true. And also that often them knowing about that mental illness, mental health concern that they have will make them able to be a better partner because of that awareness, at least, rather than so many people that don't know about what they're going through. And so I also mentioned that just in general, we all have mental health issues or are imperfect in our mental health. um, And that's something that we have to accept. And so the first question is we often ask ourselves, okay, where myself, what are my own weaknesses or issues when it comes to mental health? So um, just that you know, to burst everyone's bubble, you're not perfectly mentally healthy, myself included. So it's about understanding what is it. And actually, if you are dating someone, you would hope that they know their stuff. They know some of their issues. Everyone brings some baggage into a relationship or some baggage, which is their experience. Even if we look at something like personality, and some of those themes were coming up with the caller that it did seem like this uh, gentleman had some uh, depression or depressive tendencies, but it might have contributed to some aspects of his personality that she liked or that make him uh, a good partner or things that she would like about him. And it doesn't mean you have to be depressed to have those good qualities, but that they can often come together. And so when we look at personality, um, sometimes we think, oh, this is how people are. But really, a lot of personalities, it's telling us how someone isn't also. Or it's showing us their tendencies, uh, but that also then tells us things that they are not. So, for example, if someone tells you, oh, oh, they're so consistent, they are so consistent, which sounds like the positive side of that quality. But what they're also telling you is that they're not very flexible, likely. They can be, but if their tendency is towards being very, very consistent and, and always doing things the way they said and doing them the same way, that can be good and has some strengths and benefits and in certain contexts can be good, but it can also mean they lack some flexibility in being able to um, respond to things and do something different if the situation now calls for it. So when we look at our own personalities, well, to begin with, there's a sense that I always think we have to be mindful of it. We do have tendencies. We do see that there's ways of being, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's some purely genuine and authentic sense of self that shows up as the personality. Uh, in the myth of normal that I discussed, uh, I think it was last week, uh, Gabor Mate talks about this as well. Um, this The sense that when we look at personality, it isn't always the sense of, oh, this is me in the purest form. It is often we've learned to be a certain way based on our life experiences, surviving what we went through in our childhood that has led to certain ways of being, be more comfortable, feel like they get rewarded, being afraid to be certain ways. That's another aspect of it. Your shadow, the parts of yourself that you've disowned or 
put away because they felt either risky or not good or you saw the bad side of them. So you put even the healthy side of that same type of um, personality or aspect of yourself away. So there's things that we've learned to do or to be that now have become what we think is our, our personality. But we might be more than what meets the eye or even what we ourselves think of ourselves. A few weeks ago, I talked about this and I've talked about this theme before of being romantic with ourself, which sounds, maybe that sounds bad. But what I mean by that is that when we look at romance and romantic relationship, what can often happen is we lose that because we think our partner is completely predictable because we think we completely know them. Oh, I know you, you do this, you think this way, you feel this way. And we do that because then it feels more secure and stable. But we don't realize is we're trading away the passion that's there because we lose the sense of, I don't completely know you. And now it might seem like, well, with ourselves, we can't trick ourselves in that way or do that, but we most definitely do. We're much more comfortable thinking, I know exactly how I am, who I am, how I feel. I don't like this. I do like this. Oh, I like acting in this way. I don't like acting in this way or talking in this way or whatever it might be, but we might be actually limiting our own experience. And so in that way, we might even take away some of our own passion of life or our joy of life or the passion of being with ourselves, of experiencing ourselves in our life uh, individually. We can take that away because we'd rather feel like, oh, no, I just know I'm this way and not that way. We might be afraid to try new things, try out new ways of being or experiencing or really being in touch with that authentic self in the sense of authentically responding to our world, our relationships, the people around us, even what we're going through internally, we might not authentically respond because we want to feel more comfortable in the ways that we do things. Because in childhood, we learn ways of surviving that make a lot of sense. It's actually quite amazing how as children, we just unconsciously learn what to do and what not to do to survive. And that's great. But the unfortunate thing is that we then go through life even though we're no longer in that environment, but still acting in those same ways. The analogy I sometimes think of is that if you grew up in a house where there was a lot of fire and there was smoke, well, you might have learned to crawl around or to always make sure you weren't standing up completely straight and hunching over so you wouldn't be breathing in the smoke. And so that would be a really important way that you learned how to survive your home was to avoid the smoke. But now... You're out of that home, but you still might walk around without completely putting your head up high and with your being as tall as you can be because you still are so used to that's a dangerous thing to do. It's safer to be hunched over or to crawl around. If you hold yourself up completely uh, and put your head up high, you might actually choke or die or something bad is going to happen. And I kind of like that way of putting the analogy because that's often how we live our lives is that we don't live to the fullest, we don't stand up as tall as we can and experience ourselves in the fullest way because of these things we experienced in childhood that made it feel like it was not safe. So we can see that it was a very important survival tactic that we learned, but now we're in a different environment. We don't need to crouch around, but we still might act in that way. So in understanding ourselves and our issues, part of it is even looking at personality and things we might think are good about ourselves but really looking at them quite closely. And this can sound like, you know, uh, a therapist telling you to analyze even the good things and find something bad about it, but it's more in really trying to understand yourself. 
um, something that people experience in therapy related to this is we might say, okay, oh, it looks like you are being really nice to everyone and has a people pleaser element to it. And then we can trace that, okay, let's look at your childhood and where you learned that you had to put your own needs aside, you had to take care of other people. If you did something they didn't like, you were afraid they wouldn't love you or they would leave you and all these things. And then the person can have this uh, feeling that's almost a anxiety of this sense of, wait, does that mean I'm just like not even a nice, a good person or kind person? That anytime I am nice or kind to anyone, it's coming from just this fear and this place that's not good. And it isn't usually that black or white. It doesn't mean you have no kindness in you, or if it wasn't for pleasing other people, you never would do something kind to other people. It likely is that there's something there that has just become exaggerated. So you are kind and have kindness in you, but now you are operating this inflexible way of always being nice or doing the thing that makes other people feel good rather than more genuinely or authentically responding to the situation, to life and what's going on around you. So we can see that there's some connection here with what I was saying about personalities that it doesn't mean if you are outgoing, when we say extroverted, introverted, or whatever the quality is that we talk about, that you don't, that's all fake. It's just a mask that you've put on. But if it's become more, um, uh, you know, fossilized in some way that it's rigid, then that's the part that might not be authentic, that you're always operating in that way. That's the part that you want to look at and think, oh, maybe I'm just more comfortable or I think I'm always the guy or the girl or the person that acts in that way and I have to be that way. What else might I do? How else might I respond if I gave myself the space to respond more authentically and genuinely and to not feel that I always act had to act in a certain way? So now when we enter a relationship, of course, we see parts of a person that we like and aspects of who they are, but we also do want to recognize that there's more to them than what they're presenting to us, not even just because people initially present the best sides, but even that they are more complex than what they've shown us and maybe even shown to themselves. But what one would hope is that, yes, we do have these tendencies and baggages and things that we bring from our previous relationships and experiences in life, that you're with someone that actually knows their own stuff. So rather than if someone says, oh, I don't have any problems, that's really scary. That's the deal breaker to me. If someone says, I have no issues at all, or I've never you know, had a problem, or I have nothing about me that I need to change, that to me is much more concerning than someone that has some awareness of, yeah, you know, I actually sometimes can be insecure about this, or I do have some anxiety and it especially gets bad in these moments, or I can get depressed and I've gone through depression before. That to me is a much better partner than someone that has no awareness because it exists. It's just like if someone is saying, we're going to drive on this road and someone says, oh no, it's perfect. This road is just perfectly paved, no problems. But then there are these hazards along the way that you're going to hit. You'd much rather be with someone that says, oh, you know what? Yeah, there's a few potholes here that are bad. This area is not very well lit. You have to be careful. This light has a problem. This traffic sign has an issue. That's someone that you're much more safe with than someone who that wants to think that nothing is wrong and everything is perfect. But when we sometimes operate from this mindset of, uh, you know, positive vibes only and um, I don't want anyone that brings me down or I want someone that only makes me feel good and some of these uh, unrealistic, idealized views of relationships and life that some people might have, we actually create quite unhealthy relationships 
that won't be very authentic and then will likely burn out in some way because inevitably when the problems arise, when things happen that don't feel quite good, we think, oh, well, then it wasn't what I thought it was, which is true, but what you thought it was was not even realistic to begin with or something you want to strive towards. When we have unrealistic expectations, we inevitably will be let down by our partner and by the relationship and think that something is wrong. So coming back to the book that I discussed today, the concept of anxiety and how Soren Kierkegaard is saying that anxiety is actually part of what makes us human and not something we have to just erase or get rid of completely or think we can get rid of completely, but that actually we can embrace it and face it. To me, it's a similar type of thing when it comes to our own issues and our partner's issues and when we're having a relationship, the issues that will inevitably arise. There's no perfect relationship. There's no way we can make ourselves perfect for the relationship. We definitely can work on ourselves and should be doing that. Looking at Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving, rather than just thinking of finding the right object to love, we can develop our own capacity to love and also look at what might be the roadblocks and hindrances to us being a good partner and a good loving partner to someone else. So we definitely should do that. But also accept that no matter what we do, all the preparation, all the um, different things that we try to do to make a good relationship, those are all to try to make it the best that we can, but doesn't mean we make it perfect or protect ourselves from experiencing the challenges. So I hope you'll find someone that knows their own stuff. And I hope you also know your own stuff and the psychological issues and things that you deal with and that you can share them openly with your partner, not to scare them away because if they are truly ready for a genuine relationship and a a uh, realistic relationship. They'll know that they have issues and you'll have issues. Now they know them. Let's see if we can make this work. That brings us to the end of today's show. Also, um, if you're listening to this live tomorrow, Saturday, November 19th, there are protests around the world. I hope you will participate. I will be going here in Hollywood, uh, in the Los Angeles area, but I hope you will go wherever you are to the protests nearest you. Uh, a big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.